Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. And if you'd like to follow along, you can find this on page 744 in your pew Bibles. 744. Okay. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. So um, I'm sure we could probably all think of times when we made plans or had expectations that things would go a certain way, and and things turned out much differently than you expected. You know, whether you dream or plan this perfect surprise party that will totally catch your friend off guard or you know, this dream vacation or the perfect wedding, uh, more often than not, uh, things are going to go wrong. Um, I read about this one couple in Maine who were planning for their wedding. Uh, they got engaged in October, and were going to be married the following June. And so the bride reserved her dress for the wedding in January, uh, but in February, the store caught fire, and the dress was destroyed. Uh, but fortunately, she was able to reserve another one. Um, The bride had a daughter from a previous marriage who was going to be graduating from high school that year. And um, she got notice from the school that the graduation ceremony, which was going to be on a Thursday, they now moved to Saturday, which was the day of the wedding. No problem, they thought. They'll just change the time of the wedding from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Or from 2 p.m. to 11 a.m., sorry. And this wasn't a problem for the caterers or the church but the wedding invitations were already printed. And so when they ordered new invitations, the invitations listed the right time, but now they spelled the groom's name wrong. And so they put in another order. And they got everything right, but there weren't enough invitations included in the order. And then the wedding day came, and the bride who was was going to have her son, who was in the military, escort her down the aisle in full military garb, 
The son, though, forgot, forgot part of his uniform. He left it at the base of a thousand miles away. So he had to escort it down the aisle wearing a short sleeve open shirt because he forgot his jacket. Um, they planned for an outdoor reception, but it rained. So they had to move it indoors. Um, but luckily, um, the rest of the day went fine and they were still able to make it to the um, daughter's graduation. But then the honeymoon came. And so they had to postpone their honeymoon until August, which caused them to lose an initial $300 deposit. Um, and so, and the couple planned to go to Aruba. And so they were going to drive down to Boston on a Thursday night to catch their, and spend the day in Boston on Friday before they caught their plane on Saturday. On Thursday night, though, as they were planning to uh, drive down to Boston, they stopped for dinner at their favorite restaurant. And after they ate, they ate, the husband realized he had food poisoning. And so he spent the night in ER hooked to IVs and oxygen. Uh, undaunted, though, once he got discharged, they drove to Boston and they caught their flight. Uh, once in Aruba, they checked into their hotel and found out what was supposed to be their honeymoon suite was actually a room consisting of twin beds. And the bride also remembered telling the travel agency that, oh, no, it's no problem that they have to walk uh, uh, you know, a little bit to get to places. But they found that the hotel that the travel agent booked them in was eight miles from anything. So they had to rent a car. And after getting their rental, they planned to take a nighttime drive around the island. But they soon realized the car that, that they got, the headlights didn't work. And so after some trouble explaining the situation to the rental agency, they got a car uh, with working headlights. Um, for the rest of the trip, the wife described they're like this. She said, Bill got sunburned and I got strep throat. We feel like we need to take another honeymoon. Maybe not to such an extreme, but I think, you know, once again, we all have, we can all think of times when we had these expectations or ideas of how things should go. And, our, and it doesn't matter how well we plan, but our best plans just went awry. You know, even for our nation, when you look at how our country is doing, maybe you feel a lot of uncertainty and anxiety with the way the state of things are, you know, with their economy, the housing market, um, the health care, the situation in the Middle East, the job market. Uh, you know, this being an election year, I mean, you listen to some of the Republican candidates speak, you watch the Republican debates, and when you hear the candidates talking, you feel like it's like doomsday for America. And I know some of you may think that if any of those candidates are elected, that'll be doomsday for America. But regardless of what you think, um, you know, I'm sure you have in this man like, things somehow, some way, they've just got to get better. And so as we continue our series on Luke, we're going to find that this thinking is actually not much different from the Jews back in Jesus' time. Uh, for them, you know, they had been waiting and waiting and waiting for things to get better. The country was currently under Roman rule, and for the majority of the past hundreds of years, they were under foreign oppression. This wasn't what they wanted. This wasn't what they expected. I mean, didn't God even promise in the Old Testament that he would send someone to restore Israel's fortunes and make them a ruling country, not a country to be ruled over? And as we get into Luke, uh, once again, let me remind you that, so we're picking up this series, and we, we picked up this series that we were doing in Luke a few weeks ago, and, and when we picked it up 
a few weeks ago, uh, Chuck began, uh, Pastor Chuck began preaching on Luke 19, which was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you remember, Jesus entered the city riding on a donkey to a king's procession as the people were shouting out phrases from Psalm 118. The crowd thought, you know, this is our king. This was the king who's riding into Jerusalem and he's going to overthrow the Roman government and he's going to reestablish Israel's reign. He will usher in the kingdom of God. He will come and make all things new. And once again, maybe some of us feel like this would happen now, that Jesus would come to establish his kingdom and make all things new. You know, if you recite the Lord's Prayer, you know, we even pray this, thy kingdom come. You know, we wish that he would come not only to fix things like our economy, but more importantly, to wipe away things like you know, poverty, genocide, disease, you know, human trafficking, you know, other areas of injustice and oppression. And we ask ourselves, you know, why hasn't he done this yet? Why hasn't he come to establish his kingdom? And this parable is going to talk on this topic. I mean, we know in hindsight that Jesus, during these final days of his life, did not try to overthrow the government, did not try to establish Israel's reign, And from this passage, I want to highlight why things didn't go for the Jews as they had hoped for and why Jesus fully didn't usher in his kingdom then and still hasn't fully ushered in his kingdom. Jesus uses this parable to summarize about 1,500 years of Israel's history and his relationship with Israel. There's much symbolism in the parable, which many of you probably picked up on. But just to make sure, I want to go over what all these things represent. So first off, you need to know that the vineyard owner is God. God owns the vineyard. He planted it. He cultivated it. Um, There's a parallel account of this parable in Matthew, in Matthew 21. And Matthew adds a few more details about how the vineyard was prepared. Um, In verse 31 of Matthew 21, Matthew writes, The owner put a wall around the vineyard, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And by adding this, This further shows the planning that went into the vineyard. It wasn't done haphazardly. It was prepared with much care, with much thought. So those who would, you know, uh, be in charge of the vineyard would have been well equipped to produce a great crop. And next we understand that the vineyard represents Israel. I guess in one sense, you know, we could say that the vineyard is all of creation since God created everything and everything belongs to him. But in this particular parable, it is narrowed specifically to represent the nation of Israel. This was a symbol that Jesus' audience would have easily picked up on because they would would have been familiar with Old Testament passages that made the same reference, particularly in Isaiah chapter 5. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 to 2, it reads this. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about a vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted with, with it the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. So we pick up already the similarities. And then, so as not to leave any room for doubt, in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, Isaiah writes, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, and the garden of his delight. So God is the owner, and the vineyard is Israel. 
And that's the base with what with we will start from. And we'll get into the rest of the symbolism as we address this question of why Jesus wasn't ushering in the kingdom back then and making things right. And so the first reason I want to highlight why the kingdom has not fully arrived yet is because God is exceedingly patient. He is exceedingly patient. Understand that the parable as it initially starts would have been easily understood by the audience because this was a common occurrence. Israel back then was very much an agrarian society and grain was grown in the flatlands. Uh, Vineyards were planted on the hillsides. Uh, Those who owned the land on the hillsides removed stones, created little walls around them to terrace and plant vines. And it was also very common for vineyard owners to rent out the vineyard to the growers. There would have been these absentee landlords who owned the vineyard but didn't live there. And so they would make a contract with some growers to do the work and produce a crop. And there would have been this initial agreement made on how much the landowner would receive as compensation since it was his land. It was, if you think about it, it was actually a great situation for the growers because they had the freedom to work the land and and, 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 and do with it how, whatever they chose since no one was looking over their shoulder. They could work hard. They could produce a great crop, give what they uh, produce, give the share of what they produce to the owner under an agreement, and they could keep the rest for themselves. So they got most of the benefits of owning the land without actually owning the land. And so people would have easily understood this. It would have been, you know, if I told you, Today, if I started out a story today, you know, there was a man who owned an apartment building and he rented it out to some tenants and there was some agreement of to pay this amount in rent. I mean, you'd be like, okay, I get it, go on. And that's what the people would have done back then as well. But the rest of the story would have been quite a surprise and shock to the listeners. Because once again, this would not be how things would have been expected to go. And at harvest time, the owner sends one of the servants to collect the agreed-upon compensation. Very common occurrence back then. But what did the tenants do? Instead of giving him the owner's share, they beat him up. And so the owner sends another servant. And they do the same to him. And he does this his third time. Same result. In the Matthew account, it it doesn't just say that he sent one servant at a time, but it says he sent many servants at a time. And it details how the servants were even stoned and how some of them were killed. So in the parable, you have many people being abused, beaten, killed. And so who do these wicked tenants represent? The tenants represent the people of Israel with a primary emphasis on the religious leaders and false teachers. Those who would have been responsible for leading the people into a right relationship with God, those given care over the nation. And then who are these servants that get beaten up? The servants represent the prophets that God had sent to deliver his message and warn the people. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament do we find God sending his servants to the Israelite to deliver God's message, to plead with them, to turn from their wickedness, you know, to go and, you know, in a sense, tell them, you know, Why don't, ask them, you know, why don't they give me my fair share? Why are they taking advantage of my kindness? And then what did the people do? What did the tenants do? They abused the prophets. I like how one speaker chemically shared that, 
you know, God had to call his prophets because no one in his right mind would want to be one. I mean, no one would volunteer and just say, yeah, I want to be your prophet. God called Jonah, if you think about it, to be his messenger. And he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going the other way. I mean, people knew that prophets were not treated kindly. Elijah at one time had to run for his life. Jeremiah, if you read his book, I mean, he's like one of the most depressing guys ever. And after he delivered a prophetic message, he was seized by the crowd and he was threatened with death. Another time after delivering a prophetic message, they threw him into a cistern and just let him fend for himself, assuming he would die. John the Baptist was thrown in jail and later beheaded. So, like, no one would want to be a prophet. I mean, you were this lone voice sent by God to tell these hard-hearted people that you're wrong. You think you're following God, but you're not. You need to repent. But the people refused, and they rebelled, and they, and they abused these prophets. I mean, this is what the wicked tenants do to the servants. And once again, this shows the extreme patience of God. I mean, how many of us, if we were the landowner, would have had this much patience with the tenants? If you were a landlord and your tenants weren't paying up, would you keep people sending people to kindly ask for the money? <laughs> I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that someone, after one or two times of asking for the money, would just keep sending more people. And then as the parable continues, the owner makes the ultimate gesture by sending his son. In verse 13, what shall I do? I will send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. You know, I can imagine, you know, if we were all in a movie theater watching this movie unfold, and we, we saw the landowner saying this, you know, I can see this collective, like, no, going out, you know, going out in, in the audience. Because, you know, we'd be like, you're crazy. Don't do this. It's not going to turn out good. We know this. And from the story, we can see that it didn't. You know, they killed his son. In a few days, Jesus, who... Is, who is the son here in the story, would be led to the cross and crucified. And we listen to this parable and we think, man, those guys are just plain evil. I mean, what is up with these people? How could they do this? How could they do this when the owner showed so much patience with them? But when we think about it, the truth of the matter is that just as God showed amazing patience with these tenants, God shows exceeding patience with us. For we can be like the wicked tenants. I mean, how many times in our lives do we find God calling us, convicting us, teaching us truth in his word, but we don't want to obey? I mean, God calls us to follow him, but we decide we want to be in control of our lives rather than let God be in control. And maybe we can reply, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, I haven't beaten up anyone, I haven't abused any prophet, I haven't killed anyone. But don't forget, you know, our sins, our wrongdoings, are also what led him to the cross. Romans 4.25 plainly tells us, he who is Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. And also in First Peter, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins. For we were like sheep who have gone astray. So God did not usher in his kingdom yet because God showed extreme patience to the people, wanting them to heed this message, to turn from their evil and turn to God and follow him. And he is still showing that great patience with us today. And this leads to the second point, which is that God doesn't usher in his kingdom yet 
Because when he does, it's going to be a time of judgment. You know, we often don't like to talk about judgment, and we may not like to think that God judges. You know, how can a loving God judge people? But this parable teaches us that judgment not only happens, but it's actually an appropriate response. You know, in our passage, Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, What then will the owner do, owner of the vineyard do to the tenants? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The owner, once again, has shown incredible patience, yet they beat his servants, they killed his son. I mean, what should be expected of them? I mean, should he go and shake their hands and give them a prize? I mean, the people in the audience know this. I mean, in the Matthew account, it's interesting that before he says anything, he asks them what the owner should do. He says in Matthew 21, verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And then in verse 41, here's the reply. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, the people replied. I mean, he didn't even have to say anything. They said it for him. They knew this should be expected. And even for us, I don't think we have a problem with it because we can resonate with this response. I mean, if we were a landlord that owned an apartment building and our, and our tenants weren't paying rent and we sent someone to go try to ask them for the rent, and you come back and you ask him how it went, but you don't really need to ask him because you see that he has like two black eyes and a broken nose and his hair pulled out. You wouldn't think about what your response should be. I mean, would you send someone else? Maybe you would, but what if the same thing happened? And you send your son and they kill him? I mean, wouldn't we also say, I mean, let justice be served. They killed your son. They beat up your servants. Get rid of them. Bring them to an end. I don't think it's too hard to, to fathom why there should be judgment when we think about it in light of what God has done and the amazing patience that he's shown for us. The one problem I see, though, that is if we can concur with this statement and acknowledge that this is correct, And if we can also acknowledge that we can be seen as the wicked tenants, then what does this mean for us? And recognize that the listeners back then also came to the same conclusion, which is why they responded, may it never be, may it never be. This is one of the strongest responses in their language, one of the strongest negative responses they could give in their language. May it never be. We don't want to be those tenants we don't want to be destroyed. But Jesus answers their question in verse 17 when he says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or capstone. This is the gospel message that though Jesus soon will be arrested and crucified, this is part of God's plan to bring healing and reconciliation to the world. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, our relationship with him can be restored. We read in scripture that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is saying, you know, since I died, my father will count my death for you. If you admit you're wrong and follow me as your leader and build your life around me, I will be that cornerstone that you can build on and that won't fail you. So don't reject me. I don't want to be that stone that crushes you. I want to be that cornerstone that you can build on. 
I want to be that stone that heals you. And, and, and just so you know, I mean, Jesus' remark about judgment was fulfilled, at least in part, in AD 70. If you're not aware, of, some Jewish zealots began a revolt against Rome, and the Roman army came and surrounded the city. And they soon entered it, and they just wiped out everything in the city. Um, they burned down the temple, they destroyed all the buildings, the city was left in desolation. So Jesus is serious when he speaks about judgment. I mean, if God has shown extreme patience and kindness to them back then and to us now, even allowing his son to be murdered, what should be his response if we reject his son? I mean, judgment is a correct response. And the last point I want to make on this is God isn't fully ushering his kingdom yet because we are also responsible for it. We are responsible to do some of his work. Because the original tenants rejected the vineyard owner, verse 16 says, he will give the vineyard to others. But who are these others? And some of you can probably guess, you know, well, they're the Christians, right? They're followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Those who kill and reject the son will be destroyed, and the vineyard will be given to those who follow the son. And that's true, but there's a little more to it. See, in the Matthew account, once again, in verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And that last part is the key. A people who will produce its fruit. Because you see, it's not enough just for you to call yourself a Christian. God expects you to produce fruit, to be the one who helps bring in this harvest. What kind of fruit is Jesus referring to? I believe it's this work of advancing his kingdom, helping to usher in his kingdom, by proclaiming the gospel message to those who don't know it yet, to produce the fruit of helping to address issues of hurt and suffering in the world, you know, seeking to make a difference with issues like poverty and injustice and oppression. When you don't think God is addressing the evils in the world, recognize that you may be part of the answer. I like this quote um, in this book that we went through in Sunday school last semester. Um, We went through this book last semester, A Hole in the Gospel by World Vision President Richard Stearns. And he included this quote by an anonymous person which read, Sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering, and injustice when he could do something about it. And someone replies, well, why don't you ask him? And the friend responds, because I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. And so the takeaway for you today is, what kind of fruit would you say you were currently producing? What are you doing that that you would say helps bring about God's work of reconciliation and advancing the kingdom. Maybe if some of you are like, well, I don't even know what fruit you're talking about, or I don't even know how to produce this fruit. And if you feel that way, I would have you go home and do a study of John 15, for this chapter speaks much on the topic. And just as a preview, you know, in John 15, 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I, am, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And later in verse 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves 
to be my disciples. So God wants us to bear much fruit. He expects us to. And in doing so, as it says in John 15, 8, we prove that we are his disciples, that we are truly the good tenants who inherit the vineyard and work the land and produce the crop. We don't have much time to get into it today, but you know, John 15 speaks much of abiding in Christ. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. So we need to get to this point where we're growing in our relationship with Jesus and growing to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we can sense the Holy Spirit's leadings in our lives and understand what God is calling us to do and taking the step of faith to act on it. I'm really glad that you know the ICF team, uh, Philadelphia team was able to share today because you were able to hear from some of them that, you know, during the trip, they really learn to, what it means to be better abiders in Jesus. You know, how they had to stay in the Word. How they recognized the importance of prayer. And how God led them to take bold steps of faith to find that God not only wanted to use them, but that He enabled them to be used by Him. So God does want to use us. And he does empower us to do so. Do we recognize that in our lives? Can we say, look, Lord, this is the fruit that I'm producing for you now. As I uh, just kind of wrap up, I just want to say for those who, you know, maybe investigating Christianity, um, I would just have you look at this parable and think about what the death of the Son, what the death of Jesus might mean for your life. God let his son die so that we can be reconciled in our relationship with him. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, as those who know the patience of God in your life, as those who recognize that there will be judgment in the end for those who reject God, you know, just go and bear fruit. Ask God how he wants to use you to advance his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. Ask him how he wants to use you to advance the kingdom by addressing some of the evils in the world, even if it's just in a really small way. And once again, this is not only asked of us, but it's necessary to remain in the vineyard because the vineyard growers who inherit the vineyard are the ones who will produce its fruit. So maybe even this week, as you learn to abide in Jesus, as you remain in Jesus, as you submit to his promptings, he will lead you to share this message of hope with someone. And this person will accept him as his or her cornerstone. They will escape judgment and they will join you as a fellow vineyard worker. This can happen as you abide in Christ and you, uh, you know, just let God enable you to do the things that he wants you to do to advance the kingdom. And I pray that you, many of you will find this true in your life this week. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the truth that is presented uh, in your word. God, first off, we, we do just want to thank you for the extreme patience that you have had in our lives, Lord. Uh, Lord, you know, personally, you know, how many times have uh, I, I sinned and turned away from you? And I'm sure all of us can admit that you know 
you know, just there's been so many times that we have turned away. But you have been patient with us, Lord. And we thank you for your grace and, and, and mercy on us. And we recognize, Lord, that you do want us to go and bear fruit. And it can only be done by abiding in you. So, Lord, um, challenge us to uh, remain in you, to teach us what that means, to know that prayer and Bible study is not just an end itself, but it's a means to uh, help us and equip us to go and bear fruit and go and advance your kingdom, to proclaim the message of Jesus and to address issues of poverty and suffering and injustice. Lord, help us to be used by you and bear fruit for you. May all of us, you know, just at the end of our lives, just be able to, to see you and say, look, Lord, look at all this fruit that we produce for you. By your grace, may it be so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks a lot.